Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Dear student, a phrase you often hear me use is that campus is bad, but it is certainly a world full of competing stories that are trying to become ultimate in your life, right? Like, because of, of campuses is filled with just good things, right? Like, I want you to get involved, but like, something we have to recognize is that due to, to our fallen world, right, the, the broken nature uh, of everything that we experience, these stories, these, these originally good things try to become ultimate in your life. When they become ultimate in your life, they become idols that enslave you to a cruel bondage. And you've probably already experienced this, right? Out on campus and, and, and in your social media feeds, right? There are hundreds of activities that are vying for your attention and hundreds of organizations that have been vying for your allegiance. And then on top of all this, right, on top of this brave new world full of competing stories, Gone are the days in which you just go to whatever church your parents go to. Gone are the days in which you even, it's assumed that you're going to church at all, right? You no longer just hop in the car and go to church with your parents, but rather, Jesus is just one of the many options on the buffet line of your life on the college campus. And so for the first time, right, for the first time, it's not your parents or your grandparents, or your aunt, or your uncle, or your youth minister, or your preacher. The first time you yourself are deciding, what are you going to do with Jesus? Right? Like, whether you realize it or not, realize it or not, that's a question that you're being confronted with, right? Like, what are you going to do with Jesus? And, and then you're answering it, right? With your words, and your actions, and your posture towards people, and the worldview with which you approach all the new things that you're experiencing out on campus. And so tonight, and really throughout this whole year, it's my goal to help you slow down just enough so that you can answer that question with some intentionality, right? That you can slow down enough and just realize that you're you're answering it at all, and, and hopefully also with some integrity, right? That, like, I can put up a mirror for you and help you look at yourself and realize that that's a question you are answering. This academic year, our theme is The Good News. And we're simply just going to be walking through the Gospel of Mark. And that may seem weird to you or impractical or, or really just not interesting um, and to commit that much time to, to one book. And if you're thinking that, I, that's totally fair. My dad was a campus minister, though, for about 30 years, and it was his commitment to teach through a gospel at least once every four years, so everyone got to experience it. For me and my friends, it was the gospel of Luke. It took about five years and 85 lessons. I still have a group of, of five guys, um, and we, uh, this ages me, but we still Skype. Um, this is pre-Zoom time, and we just kind of continue on Skyping. Um, but I still have this group of five guys that I Skype with, and when we talk about uh, the most formative experiences we've had in our lives, not just like just in college, but like literally our whole lives, this insanely long series is always one of them. For us to see how the story of Jesus impacted and transformed and redeemed our stories out on the college campus changed everything for us, right? It redirected our purpose. 
It challenged us to grow up. It altered the way we saw and related to people, especially those in the margins of society. And it it gave us a worldview that could handle suffering. Suffering that each and every one of us has faced even just five years out of college. And I think the same will be true of you. If you're willing to just make the choice to commit to coming to connect this year and allowing the story of Jesus to inform your story out on the college campus, I think it'll change your life. It's going to challenge you, right? Change isn't easy, but I think it'll change your life for the good. And so as we begin this journey, I just want to kind of unpack a little bit of background around the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel. It's very choppy. It's action-packed. Chapters 1 through 8 cover cover, uh, two and a half years uh, of of Jesus' life and really the ministry of Jesus. And then chapters 9 through 16 cover about six months. And chapters 11 through 16, right, a smaller section inside of that, cover just one week of Jesus' life. It's the last week of Jesus' life that we call the Passion right? Um, the Gospel of Mark, it, it, it has 19 miracles and only four, four parables, right? So high on action, low on words, right? The word immediately is used 40, more than 40 times, and the word and begins two-thirds of each sentence, uh, each uh, two-thirds of the sentences in the Gospel of Mark. So it's like, and then they did this, and then they did that, and immediately they did that, and it's boom, 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 boom. A person writing it down is probably named, well, Mark, right? But uh, he is a friend of Peter. And really what he, Mark is, is more than an author. He's a compiler of Peter's stories. We know he, he knows Peter from, from 1 Peter chapter 5 and, and Acts 12, and then this guy named Piapus who wrote down that Peter was writing down the, uh, Mark was writing down the stories of Pete, Peter's stories of Jesus um, in about 140 A.D., this gospel was written, though, probably um, in 65 to 67 AD, so about 30-ish plus years after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It was probably written in Rome. It was probably written for the Roman church, the church that found itself in the city of Rome. You see, in 64 AD, um, there was an emperor, a Roman emperor named Nero, and he set fire to Rome himself, but um, people didn't tend to like the Christians very much because they were odd, and so Nero just blamed the Christians. He used them as a scapegoat, and there was this strong and heavy persecution of the Christians in Rome, and it's believed that Peter was killed in this persecution in about 64 AD, right? This is where um, Peter was, was, was uh was crucified on an upside-down cross. Here's the thing. Most of these Christians that found themselves in Rome that were experiencing this persecution were converted by Peter or at least had been ministered to by him, right? He was there, and there is no pun intended here, but he was there, rock. And now he's gone. And if you're in your their shoes, right, like, what's going through your brain? Your faith is now under attack in a way that it never was previously, right? Like you're being persecuted. But then second of all, the person uh, who passed their faith on to you is no longer in the picture. And so, right, like just like you, just like you college students, 
these Christians were asking themselves for the very first time, well, what do we do with Jesus? And so Mark writes down Peter's account a couple years later of Jesus. And he begins with the passage that Elise read over us just a little bit ago. And so if you haven't already, I encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. It's a passage that directly answers that question. What do we do with Jesus? As Mark provides with us for us two different stories of people responding to Jesus for the first time. The first person that we see responding to Jesus is a guy named John the Baptist, right? And this takes place in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. And, and as, as just we read this passage, I just want you to be asking yourself this question. What is John's posture towards Jesus, right? How does he respond to Jesus? As is written in, the, in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist prepared appeared in the wilderness, pre preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole of the Judean countryside and all people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing. So basically, right, like people are just flooding to see John, all right? Just flooding to see John, all right? Um, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and, and wild honey. And so here... All this imagery that's being played out here is that John's like this Old Testament prophet-like figure, right? And people are just flooding out to see him. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not unworthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, right? So what is John's posture towards Jesus? Yeah, it's like one of humility, right? I don't know if you... Um, ever seen these these uh, bumper stickers on cars, he, and his he, capital H-E, and then the greater than sign that I, um, lowercase, and he must be greater than I. I always thought it said hecky, um, but I think we, we get that phrasing, right? He must become greater, I must become less in, in the gospel of John. But, um, right, but like obviously John has this posture of humility. But here's the thing, this isn't just like, you know, your regular old self-deprecating humility, but rather Christian humility, the kind of humility that John is embodying for us, the kind of humility that, that, that Mark is, is telling us about here, has a direction, and that direction is Jesus, right? It is more about thinking of oneself less because we're so consumed with who Jesus is and what he's going to do and what he is doing, rather than thinking less of myself. Right, John isn't saying here, you know, woe is me, I'm this terrible person, yada, yada, yada. No, he's just so consumed with who Jesus is and what he's about to do. And so as the readers of this gospel, right, then and now, me and you, are faced with the question, like, what do we do with Jesus? Mark tells us this story to say that we should point to him. Right? The whole of John's life is this life that just points to Jesus. And he points with his words and his deeds. Right? He points with his words. Right? All these people are coming out to him. Right? And they, they just want to see that this spectacle, right? This, this Old Testament prophet spectacle here, right? And um, but John directs their attention 
to one that is going to follow him rather than himself, right? And like, just, it's hard for us to really grasp this, but like, that came at a great cost. John could have become a Messiah-like figure, right? So Jesus is like this weird thing, but like Jesus wasn't the only Messiah-like figure walking around these days. It was the hope of, of Israel that a Messiah would come in and overthrow the, the, the Roman Empire that was oppressing them, right? And so John, and this all, like all these things are happening, this Old Testament prophet imagery, they, man, if John wanted to, he could have had all these people coming out to him. He could have said, look at me, let's go take over, uh, let's go overthrow uh, the Roman Empire and restore Israel as a nation state. Like, he could have done that. But instead, he points to Jesus. It came at a great cost for him to point to Jesus with his words, right? But he doesn't just point with his words, he points with his deeds, right? And I want us to be really careful here. I want us to be careful here not to think that pointing to Jesus is something that just happens with our words, right? Like, I think we often make this mistake with, with athletes and celebrities, right? A celebrity will, will win an award, and then they will say something like, you know, thanks so much, but, you know, like, all glory be to God. Or, like, an athlete achieves something, right? They, they win um, a championship, they, they, they break a record, and, and then, you know, they take a verse like Philippians 4.13 out of context and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and apply it to a, a sporting event, right? Or they'll be like, you know, oh, you know, thanks so much, but like, all glory be to God. But like, we just need to, to, to and like, those are good things, all right? Like, those, those are fine things. I'm not saying they're bad things. However, I think if we think that that's what pointing to Jesus looks like, then we've missed Mark's point. We've missed what John's life is calling us to do. Because pointing to Christ isn't just a tagline at the end of John's life, but rather it is the framework through which he processes and interprets and articulates and makes decisions for his life in the first place, right? John just doesn't do whatever he wants to do with his life, right? Like no one, I mean, if your parent, like if you were like born back then, I guarantee you one profession, your job, uh, one profession, your parents would never want you to be is an Old Testament prophet. Yes, like they had meaningful lives, they had purposeful lives. But if you know anything about the Old Testament prophets, their lives, their lives sucked. I mean, it was hard, right? Like, it was a difficult life. It's not what your parents want you to be when you grow up, right? John didn't just do whatever he wanted to with his life and then assign God credit, right? But rather, the whole of John's life is pointing to Christ. And so John allows God to choose what he does with his life in the first place. I just want us to think for a second here, right? Like, want us to think here for a second about how like countercultural that is for you in our context, right? Like you live in a world that is defined by pointing to yourself. As you live out your life in the college campus, you live in a context that is calling you and asking you and inviting you and begging you to point to yourself, right? Like um, the college campus is saturated in this idea of of resume building. My mom, as my mom always said uh, to me, and I have an Aggie econ degree, and this is this phrase is why. You go to college to become gainfully employed, right? Um, now I know I'm, I'm only 27, I'm, I'm pretty young, 
but my, my family, as I mentioned, has been doing campus ministry for, for quite some time. And, uh, and one of the things we noticed um, after 2008, right, which was the, the time of the Great Recession, uh, this great economic downturn, was that um, th- this idea of resume building became this God on which people would just sacrifice a lot of things on the altar of. Right? Everything went through this lens. Well, how would that look on my resume? Right? Am I going to participate in an activity? Well, can I put it on my resume? Am I going to join this organization? Well, am I going to put it on my resume? Can I put it on my resume? Everything that college students do is seemingly just for the purpose of, well, can I put it on my resume so I can get this kind of job, so I can live this certain kind of life, so that I can, you know, fulfill my dreams that I have, right? But like, what is that narrative? Right, this thing that our campus is saturated in, what is that narrative? It's a narrative of pointing to ourselves. You see how countercultural this call pointing to Christ is. The other thing that I think our campus is completely and totally saturated in is, well, social media, right? Now, don't hear me say that social media is this terrible, awful thing. I'm pretty confident about 50% of you on this uh, on this deck maybe, uh, I'm pretty confident that like 50% of you, your first encounter with us, uh, with the RFC, was probably through social media. So, so don't hear me say that social media is this terrible thing. But here's the thing. Um, finish this sentence for me. Comparison is the thief of joy. Yes. You see, social media invites you to think less of yourself or more of yourself. But either way, it makes you think of yourself more. Does that make sense? Social media may make you think less of yourself. You may see someone else's life on Instagram, and it seems pristine and perfect. And then you may look at the reality of your life, and you may think of yourself less of yourself, right? You may think, woe is me. My life isn't like theirs. Or you may see someone else's Instagram account and then look at your Instagram account and think that your life looks pretty great. And so you think more of yourself, more highly of yourself. But either way, whether it makes you think less of yourself or more of yourself, it makes you think of yourself more, right? It makes you consume your, your, it makes your thoughts be consumed with your own self, right? And, and, and I'm not trying to bash sororities here um, and in really Greek life, but like as I've talked to some of you who go through this process, particularly rush, right? Like you are judged and you know it, you are judged before you are ever met meet these people in, in person by their social media account. And yet again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but like that's a re- reality that you need to reckon with if you're going to go through that process. That's a reality that you have to grapple with if you're going to go through that process because the call of the Christian is so countercultural to that, right? Instead of pointing to myself with my social media account, right? Instead of pointing myself with my resume, everything that culture is inviting us to do, we are called to live lives that point holistically to Jesus. The second um, group of people we see responding to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark are four of Jesus' original 12 disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John. It comes in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. 
As we read this passage again, I just want you to be asking yourself this question. Like, what is their posture towards Jesus? Like, how are they responding to Jesus? After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish people. And once they left their nets and followed him, when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, and John, and abode preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired men and followed him. And that last line is going to matter. We'll talk about that in just a second. But right, as the readers of this gospel, both then, right, and now, me and you are faced with that question. Like, what do we do with Jesus? Mark tells us this story that we should, well, how do they respond to him? Yeah, they follow him. Right? And yet again, like this following isn't just something like a little pebble that drops in, in the pond of their lives and creates a few ripples, right? But rather, this totally upends their life. Like what an awesome call it is to follow Jesus, but like what a, what a disruptive one it is as well, right? Jesus' call to follow him had a cataclysmic effects on every facet of of their lives. It affected them physically, right? They physically had to make the choice to follow, right? Like as Jesus is kind of like putting them in this crisis moment, hey, come and follow me. Like, leave your nets and follow me. They physically had to do that, right? They couldn't just do it in their minds. They had to like physically start moving with him, right? And the same is true for you in some ways, right? To follow Jesus, the call to follow Jesus is going to affect you physically. It's going to be places you got to be, right? Like, you're here on Wednesday night, right? And think about all the things that are happening out on campus right now, right? Like the amount of things on campus that you could be at right now, the amount of things on campus that you could be engaging with right now, but here you are. You physically had to move your body from there to here to encounter Jesus, to follow him. But it's also places not to be, right? Are you putting yourself into temptation on a Friday night? Right? Are you going to go to a party and put yourself into temptation knowing that you're going to succumb to it? Now, like, I'm not saying don't go to parties. I'm not saying don't do X, Y, and Z. But like, think about what posture you're going with, right? If you know you're going to go into a place and be tempted and then just succumb to it rather than being a light in that place, well, maybe you physically just don't need to put your body in that situation, right? It affects these guys not just physically but socially. Right? They had to uproot from all their friends and their families and their, their social safety nets, right? The, the, that's something you can relate to. You've upended from your friends and your family and your social safety nets. And they have to build new Christ-centered community, right? Like they, they, they used to have these relationships that were built on social status and, and, um, and, 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 and so, yes, like economic status and just all these things, right? Like they, the, their relationships were dictated by, by their position in the world. And they were related to people who thought like them and looked like them for the most part. But now they are in new Christ-centered community. Right? If you read on, as we read on the Gospel of Mark, we'll see some of the people that followed Jesus are everyone from a guy named, named uh, Matthew, who is a tax collector, which means he's in the pocket of the Roman empires, to a guy named Simon the Zealot, who's a guy who tries to assassinate Roman officials. Right? They had different relationships. They had different social statuses. And therefore had different friendships 
because of it. They had different social lives because of it. But now they've entered into the same Christ-centered community as they follow Jesus together, right? And then as we follow Christ, right, as we continue reading up, we'll see where Christ takes us. And he's going to take us to the margins of society. Ben's going to talk next week about how Jesus takes us to see lepers. And the same is true for you. The call of Jesus for you to follow him, a posture of following Jesus is going to upend your relationships. It's going to take you out of relationships that are defined by your social status and your economic status and people that look like you and think like you and talk like you and put you into a new Christ-centered community with people who don't necessarily look like and think like and talk like you. And then Jesus is going to take that group of people, that ragtag group of people, and then bring us to the margins of society to be lights in a dark world. It doesn't just affect these guys, right, physically or socially, but it affects them economically, right? They had to, to leave their jobs. Um, you know, we hear fishermen, we think, oh, yeah, it's pretty blue collar. It's not like this high opportunity cost to leave that. But like um, this, this region of Galilee was probably about, um, there's probably about like this 20% fairly wealthy 70% like dirt poor. And then this like 10% like little middle class and fishermen are actually there. And we know that these guys are actually on the upper end of the middle class, right? They're probably upper middle class, right? Because of that last line. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. They had people working for them. It wasn't just a fishing operation. This was a full business. And as we read through Mark, following Jesus, we're going to see this, is going to drastically change your relationship with money. You're not going to be able to, like, get away from this one. Jesus is going to move us from being slaves to our money to stewards of it. But he's going to do that by challenging our materialism. Right, this idea that more equals better. It might possibly ask you to change your major, right? Like you, you may have come into college with a certain major because your parent or your grandparent or or, or uh, some mentor told you, well, you know, if you got, if you become a doctor, if you become a lawyer, if you become an accountant, you can make you know this kind of money and have this kind of life that you know is socially desirable and acceptable. Mary Beth and Ben and I, we all had the same campus minister at Auburn. His name was Micah. And Micah, and he can never hear me say this, but Micah um, is probably one of the smartest people I know. Um, and I'm not just saying that, like, I've talked to some of the people who were his professors, and they were like, yeah, I mean, Micah is, like, genuinely brilliant. Micah is just basically good at everything he puts his mind to. And Micah could have made a whole lot of money. He was even in law school in Alabama at one point, and he dropped out, because he and, and now he's a minister. Let me just tell you, ministry isn't lucrative, right? But Jesus, following Jesus, having a posture of one, uh, having a posture that follows Jesus might, it might just cause you to change your major and enter into a different field that may be less lucrative, but maybe God's call on your life. And what we see that's happening here, right, is we, we see their lives being upended socially and economically and, and physically. It's just this, this I, whole shift in identity, right? Like following Jesus has changed 
who they are. Who they are at their very core and essence, right? Um, Verse 16, kind of towards the end, right? It says they were fishermen. That's a statement of identity. But then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. You see that? He's changed their identity. As my dad um, tried to apply this to, to college students, he would say, you are not just a college student who happens to be a Christian. Rather, you are a Christian who just happens to be a college student. Do you hear that shift in identity? And do you realize just how difficult all this is in our culture, right? We are called to have our identity transformed by calling Christ, but by following Christ, but culture is constantly telling us, right? You do you, or follow your heart, or be yourself, or speak your truth, or love your life, or live, laugh, love. Right? We live in a world in which individualism reigns supreme in our culture, right? And, and that is only amplified out on campus, You're told that college is the time you're supposed to find and and discover yourself. But Mark is calling us here to find Jesus, right? We don't discover ourselves in college. We discover Jesus. We root our identity in him and we follow him with all of our heart, mind, body, and spirit. And the question that I always find myself asking here, and I I think if you're being honest with yourself, you you probably are too, is, well, if this is the case, why why would we do this? If this is the case, right, if if we are going to be called to live this counterculturally, and and we're going to become marginalized by society for it, right? I mean, just think about this for a second, right? John, um, just a few chapters later, he's going to be killed for pointing to Jesus as king, John the Baptist. Just a few chapters later, he's going to be killed for pointing to Jesus as king. The four disciples that followed Jesus, three out of the four of them, are killed because they followed Jesus and pointed to him as king. And by the way, the third, uh, the, the, the fourth one that it doesn't get killed um, for doing this is John. And they did try to kill him. They tried to boil him in a pot of boiling oil. It just didn't work. You see, Jesus makes such a claim on these guys' lives, and he makes such a claim on your life if you start pointing and following to him, that their identity was, and, and their identity was so transformed because of it. And they no longer conformed to culture, and therefore culture was against them, right? They became cultural dissidents. And so why would we point and follow to Jesus if that's what's going to happen? If you're looking in your Bibles, go to Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He unpacks this a little bit later in Mark chapter 1, verses 19 through 13. This is the only part that we haven't touched in the first 20 verses here. So let's let's dive into that for a second. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, right? And we see this beautiful picture of the Trinity, right? God the Father speaking, God the Spirit as the dove and God the Son, Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. And what Mark's doing here is he's equating Jesus with God. Why would you do this? Well, because Jesus, because if Jesus is who he claims to be, if Jesus is who Mark claims for him to be, if Jesus is who John claims for him to be, then he owns our life. But it isn't just that, right? He, read on. And once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended to him. You're about to go out into a space that some might call a spiritual desert as you live out your lives on the college campus. We talked earlier about how campus is this, this place that's filled with such good things, right? But these things are broken, right? Due to sin and the curse and the work of, of the evil one in this world. These good things have been broken. And you can't experience their fullness. And so campus ends up being this, this desert-like place. But it, the picture that we just got here of Jesus is he's the, the one, the only one who can go out into the desert places and defeat the devil, right? He's the one who can fill the promise way back in Genesis 3 that he will crush the head of the serpent. Right? Like, if you want to live this, like, full and rich and, and beautiful life out on the college campus, then, like, why would you do anything else but point and follow to Jesus? Because he's the one. He's the one who can unlock that for you. He's the one who can destroy the brokenness that is, that is marring your experience. If that's really true, why would we do anything?